You can't solve problems with weaknesses. One of the things that optimists do is use their strengths to solve problems and be reflective to think, is this working? If it's not, how do I make it work? Hello, I'm Andrew May and welcome to the NAB Business Fit Podcast, where we talk to experts and leaders in a range of fields, delving into their world to find out what fuels them and learning lessons that can be applied to running a small business. We have conversations about how they have adjusted to new ways of working, and we share stories about adapting and navigating through challenging times. Joining me today to discuss post-traumatic growth is leading clinical neuropsychologist, neuroscience researcher, and best-selling author, Dr. Nicola Gates. Nicola has worked in brain and cognitive health and well-being for over 25 years. She's a leading speaker and she's published dozens of peer-reviewed research papers. She translates complicated theory, and I tell you some of it is complicated theory, and research as a consultant to government services and private corporations. Nicola makes regular appearances on the TV, on the radio, I pick up magazines, on the internet. She's omnipresent. She's also the Strive Stronger neuropsychologist. We've been presenting programs for the last 12 months online via laptops, either your Sydney home or your farm up in the Hunter Valley. It's so nice to see you. Uh, Welcome today. Thanks, Andrew. It's great to be here, physically be here. It is nice, isn't it? Now, we're going to talk about post-traumatic growth today, and it's like this new term about out of challenging situations we can grow, but my understanding, it comes from the 90s, the mid-90s. There were two psychologists and came up with this term post-traumatic growth, and if you look back at writing the Hebrews, the Greeks, and even the early Christian writings, there was a challenge bubbling up then that out of challenging times, there can be growth and good stuff come out of it. Now, what I love, though, about a podcast, Nicola, is we find out about our guests, So let's go off script for a little bit. I would love people, and I want to find out a little bit more about you, and one of the questions I often ask is, so little Nicola, at 15 years of age, it's often when we're year 10 and we go to the council or the school advisor, and they ask a question like, what do you want to do when you grow up? So how did you answer that at 15? (laughs) Well, I'm one of those unusual quirky people that I pretty much knew before I even went to high school what I wanted to do. Um, because of my parents' occupation, I'd been exposed to different professions and I'd heard of the term, we had some very good family friends who were psychiatrists and I thought I didn't necessarily want to do psychiatry but I definitely wanted to do psychology. And so before, way before 15, I had set up to be a psychologist. And what, what I, age? Like what well, age did you have that? That's a really good question because I'm going to say there's no – There was a sense in myself that I had the capacity to listen and I guess a psych term is about holding people, so listening and holding and and being able to affirm individuals. And I'm an optimist, so that's a really good combination. But there was a pivotal event um, when I was 11 um, in the sense that it was reinforced back to me. So I'm sitting in class, I'm a goody-goody two-shoes nerd type, And the vice principal came to the classroom and said, oh, Nicola, can you come with me, please? And all the kids are kind of going, ooh, what's going on, what's going on? And um, what had happened is a a student had locked themselves in the library and she said to me, we think you're the only one who can get her out. And I can remember thinking, well, I'm surrounded by adults. Like, why have they got me? I'm an 11-year-old kid. Um, And I just, I didn't even think about it. I just automatically sat down on on the other side of the locked door and called her name and she came over and I sat and talked to her and, and then eventually I said, how about you let me into the library? And then I was in the library and we had a bit more of a chat and then we walked out together. At 11? At 11. At 11? I was an idiot. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say I wasn't an idiot. I just said that I had this capacity. <laughs> so you obviously had this wonderful gift back then or you had a presence because for all the teachers to go, 
go. Okay, Claire, Stephen, Sue, Raj. Uh, no, no, let's get that that eleven year old. That that was a pretty big thing. Yeah. Yeah. So how did that end? Like with the girl coming out and did she came out, everything was okay? Everything was okay. Yep. The school was able to take up and deal with the adult side of her story. Okay. Yeah. Now your parents, you had uh, academic parents, so I'd love you to sort of pull on that thread a little bit because I think there's got to be some forming that goes on with your upbringing to get to that moment at 11, to have the skills as an 11-year-old to coach and coax and probably should have gone down a counter-terrorism path. You know, they get those special people in. (laughs) But tell me about your parents and upbringing. You know, the distance with age from your childhood sometimes brings a different perspective. Um, So when I was growing up, I was very aware um, that my parents kind of interacted with the world in a slightly different but complementary way. So my dad was a scientist and actually looked at altruism and and evolution as an evolutionary imperative for humans to be altruistic. So you can kind of see that that would have been an influence on me. And my mum was a sociologist, so she looked at at society or collections of people um, and how that influences behaviour. So I've I've always joked that my childhood was this debate between nature and nurture and and I was trying to take this middle path between the hard science of of nature and my mum's influences of nurture and and reconcile them in a way for myself. And I see that all my um, academic training, because, you know, I've got quite a lot, she says, and I don't mean that in an egotistical way. I just mean it as I'm a very curious person. I've got multiple degrees trying to sort of reconcile those two camps and find a middle path. How many degrees have you got? <laughs> I think it's five. When you ask someone, and for those of you who are watching this on the video, you'll see that Nicola had to pause and I'm, I'm doing that to provoke you. You've spent a lot of your, that, that's probably 15 plus years, maybe more, right, studying. 15, 20 years studying. Oh, I don't think he ever stopped studying. I'd be saying I've been studied oh, forever. Nice, nice. But I've formally studying in formally studying. I don't know, about 14. So the eleven year old who's called to talk another young girl out of a, a locked room goes and studies psychology. And you've had a, a wonderful career and you've still got a wonderful career. Like we all have, because we're gonna leave, you know, I've said this on this podcast to 130 plus. Um, but you must have seen a lot of changes in psychology in that time. And today, for instance, we're talking about post-traumatic growth. But if we wind back, if we were doing a podcast, they didn't exist 20 years ago. If you're doing a radio interview on the wireless 20 years ago, what would have you been speaking about as a psychologist? 20 years ago, I would have been talking about brain changes and rehabilitation and how people rebuild their lives after trauma because that's the work that I was doing 20 years ago, working in complex trauma, um, which is actually a really good segue to the topic today, but that's what I would have been talking about. Now, you're a neuroscientist or a neuropsychologist. There's so many neuro words as well. So I'm going to give you a couple of the neuro words. There's neuroscience, there's neuroplasticity, neuropsychology. And I know one that sort of ruffles my feathers, and I'm sure it does yours as well, is neurohacks. So first of all, talk to me about what is neuroscience. Can you explain what does neuroscience or neuroplasticity mean? Okay, so let's just pull that apart. The first, the key word there is neuro, and that pertains to the brain. So anything neurological and, you know, brain structure, brain function, so forth. And then, I mean, ology, neurology is the study of of the brain. Neuropsychology is understanding the brain behaviour. So there's the cognition, memory, there's the brain as the organ. So for memory, it's the hippocampus. And then you talk about psychological things that might impact that. So neuropsychology picks up those three. Neuroscience is just the study of anything to do with the brain. 
neurohacks. Um, there are other words as well. How does that word sit with you, neurohacks? Because from my perspective, I see a lot of these hackers. And look, and there's some good stuff in there as well. But people go and drink all weekend and then have a hack on Sunday night to be ready for work or, you know, take a hack on a new tropic. But like exercise, sleep, have connection, have nature. There's all these big things, not just a little hack. So I sort of get my feathers ruffled a bit. Yeah, because it's a, it's very superficial. Um, and unfortunately, that's kind of the at a bigger picture level, that's kind of where we're going. Everyone wants to clickbait. You know, everyone just wants something quick and simple, no great demand on themselves, get something in a minute. So the neurohacks, um, and sometimes some of them are actually reasonably good at distilling some significant research and complicated um, ideas in a way that doesn't invalidate them when they become simplified. The problem is a lot of hacks become oversimplified and they are open to be abused by other people or misunderstood and misapplied by individuals. So that's my concern. It's a, it's a care and concern. I've got no, um, you know, some professionals get sort of feel they have turf wars and they need to defend their area of expertise. Well, firstly, I don't consider myself an expert because I'm still learning. So I don't feel that sort of ego threat because some of those quote, hacks can be actually very, very good and can be very helpful. My concern is when they have the the risk of harm. I'm going to pick you up on one thing, Nicola. Um, I don't consider myself an expert, you saying that. Oh, come on. There's a bit of experience there, a experience, little bit of experience. Experience, but I like to see, to me, if, when um, the word expert has a sense of finality, like you've got somewhere and you sit at the top of the tree. I like to think of the word experience and gaining experience because there's an acknowledgement of um, knowledge and skills and, and experience, but I see it as an ongoing process. Like curiosity is a big driver of mine and to me, and it is my bias, the word expert has a sense of um, a lot of people don't see it as an ongoing path, I think. I will never introduce you as an expert. I'll just say <laughs> <laughs> it is my curious friend who might happen to have five degrees and started practicing at the young age of 11. Now, you talk about experience. You've had a few life experiences where you've had to draw on principles of positive psychology. And I asked you before we recorded if you're okay to share this because I've been in some webinars with you on our 30-day boost program and we've just had like just people like, with tears and goosebumps and emotions. So with your permission, I'd love you to share some of the challenges you've been through, but then what have you drawn on to help you get through that? Yeah. And actually, you know, Andrew, I'm really happy you asked the question. Um, and I was thinking about this when I came here because I was recently trolled following uh, an parents on television and the trolls had taken the stance that I had no life experience, I was a Pollyanna, I was overly optimistic, and I didn't know, I would had no, you know, had no grit in my teeth, and I was disqualified, in their opinion, to make any observations, which was really, really interesting, and I mean, it's a reflection on them. So I think life is an incredibly um, enriched journey. And I think you've known of two of my big bumps in the road. Um, I've actually got a couple earlier than that. So I guess the first really formative thing, and when I say formative, is because it was me as a young adult. So I had to recruit the support that I needed because I was no longer at home, whereas things that had happened earlier, I was you know a child and had family around me. I was a pedestrian hit by a car. And um, needless to say, the car won um, just because of the physics involved. And so it took me over a year to build myself back. What, what age was that? 20. Yeah. So oh. I was in my honours year um, doing psychology. And so um, I'd already, you know, I was always going to be a psychologist. And so, you know, I had a lot of formal skills by then. 
And then I guess the next, um, I've had a few death, near death experiences just because you've recently learned um, I have a fatal allergy to peanuts. So I've actually been in a coma um, from an anaphylaxis. Well, I so- learned that 10 minutes ago because <laughs> uh, we were here, the wizard setting us up and I came in and one of my go-to snacks is an apple with some peanut butter and I walked in and is that peanut butter? Yes, get out of here. Like, just go. I I could see the fear. So, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, so I had a bad run. So I was hit by a car. I had an anaphylaxis and then actually someone broke into my house when I was a student, beat me up. And I had three events in 12 months. So I really learned how the narrative you develop around those experiences because if you think of them on paper, they're quite different experiences, but they all require the same things. I didn't know about no, you didn't. either of those. I'm no. uh, off, not often speechless. I knew about what you're about to tell us, but I had no idea, Nicola. That's, that's, that's massive. Like how do you pull on resources to process that? How do you change that schema? Because, look, if that happened to 10 people, you'd have to have a large percentage of those people. That, that, would, that would narrate the rest of their life those experiences? Possibly, possibly. So I think the fact that, you know, I'm an optimist, I come from multiple generations of optimists and, you know, my grandparents were refugees in the Second World War and, you know, they're optimists. So the narrative, the folklore in my family, which I think is really important, is always one that, you know, stuff happens and you build and the building is a celebration and motivating and it's always been um, dealt with, enthusiastically, if that makes sense. So I just want to acknowledge that my family history, because I actually think that's important in the developing of the narrative. And even though I had, um, if you like, I think the Queen called it an Annus Horribilis when she had a major events in 12 months. Well, that was mine. Um, and I think, well, being optimistic and having support, recruiting support, uh, for me, those are the key things. But fundamentally, as at a personal level and also as a psychologist, the story you tell yourself is fundamental to your life experience. And I actually keep coming back to Shakespeare. And this is what I say to people. Nothing is either good nor bad. It's the thinking that makes it so. And so like your response to what I told you is like, oh my gosh, that's horrific. And I'd go, well, it is what it is. Like I'm not even going to invest that emotional response into it, I'm going to invest my emotional response, which is what I did at the time, is, well, okay, so this is what I've been dealt with. What do I do? And, you know, as you know, I've had cancer recently and people kind of go, oh, my gosh, how are you going to deal with that? And I go, well, actually, that was a walk in the park. Mm. I was so well qualified. And I know you've heard me say that before. I was so well qualified. That makes sense. I've heard you say I was well qualified and we'd either been in a public forum or presenting together and you're in flow and you've said that and I've gone... What does that mean? I'll come back to it. That, that now makes sense. Now, yeah. yeah. So I had huge um, growth experiences within 18 months at the age of 20. And since then, at everything else, I've been very well qualified for. Wow. So the troll, and mm-hmm. I'm assuming well, you do a lot of TV, but I think you did something recently on SBS and I saw it. You, you owned it. It was great. How did you wrap that up? Did you choose to engage or did you, did you just leave it? Well, I initially was not going to engage, but then what happened was the conversations afterwards. So a couple of people said, well, actually, do you know what that person said? Like referring to me, like actually, did you read the article? Did you listen? Because if you'd actually heard her, 
you know, I wasn't being judgmental and dismissive or anything like that. I was trying to be empowering. And it started to run down a rabbit hole. And I thought, you know what, I'm actually going to stop this and I'm going to own it because they started to make assumptions that I was a 24-year-old doctor who hadn't lived. And and I just said, actually, I'm I'm 53 and um, I've had grade, because it's about menopause, and I said, I'm in medical menopause because I've had grade three aggressive cancer, double mastectomy, hysterectomy, oophorectomy. Like, if you like, I... I um, do the line around my experience to have a voice. Uh, um, the next series of questions I'm going to ask you is going to seem very easy. Um, are you prepared <laughs> for these? <laughs> you can still see me catching up. Um, I love working with you and I've said this to you before, I, I get energy from you and I'm loving, although it's tough what you've been through, I'm loving finding out more about you. It makes more sense, some of the things you've said. So what I'm about to ask is pretty easy. How have you adapted to COVID? Oh, okay. Easy. Come on, give me another <laughs> question. Move on, Andrew. Move on. No, no, it's still relevant. So, you know, I, I'm going to find myself even talking about the model of post-traumatic growth, right? Because that's how I operate, how I think, and how I work professionally. So the first thing is that acceptance, isn't it? It is what it is. You can spend your energy complaining about it. If you think of your energy as a precious resource, I'm quite disciplined in the sense I think, well, how do I want to spend it? So can't do anything about COVID. It is what it is. Okay, so what can I control? Well, I can control my risk of exposure. So this is what I did with my family. I said, okay, so this is going on. What do we need to do to, to reduce our risk? And as a caveat, I thought it was really interesting that um, optimists were really good at risk minimization, even though they didn't really think they would get COVID. But the research showed that pessimists who have a really negative view actually were the people who didn't control their risks. So which oh, I really? think is really wow, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So um, you think about controlling your risks, which is what we did as a family. And, you know, I've got 20-year-olds, so I kind of said, hey, guys, really don't want you doing the pubs, the clubs. Let's look at your social life. Let's look at our social life. Like, you know, and then it was just really going with the flow and adapting as we needed to adapt and make adjustments. And your business, because you see a lot of – you, you do – work like this. So you do media, you do speaking, you do a lot of clinical work and you work with people high up executives coaching as well. And you do research. How did the delivery mechanism change? Um, well, I needed to do a crash course in technology. And luckily, because I'm a bit of a nerd, um, that's was a bit easier. And also because I'm a registered health professional with APRA, I mean, APRA was giving guidance to health practitioners about what we should and shouldn't be doing and what health platforms or telehealth or video health platforms, whatever word you want to use. We're giving advice about which ones we could and couldn't use. So for example, you can't use Zoom in a medical or health practitioner setting. Oh, because of security? It's, yeah, it's not encrypted adequately. Um, so there are other other products you have to use. Yeah, It's not secure enough for health. Do you remember our phone call? It, it was March 2020 and I was speaking to our wonderful mutual friend, Bridget Walsh, now, I knew of you. I'd read your book on body and brain. It was great. And then I met you at the Golden Door. It's like, oh, you know, it's nice to put an author to the book you've read and, and meet the person. And then I said to Bridget, look, we're going to launch this program because a lot of our clients are saying that they're transitioning to working from home. They're really struggling with mental health and they're looking at how do you lead you know, remote? You've got to speak to Nicola. So I rang you. Do you remember what our conversation was? Do you remember what you said to me? I still remember that phone call so clear. Oh, I can remember just thinking, you know, it was like it was – I was going to say a blast from the past, but you know what I mean? Because we hadn't had any ongoing contact. 
and um, or you you know, Andrew, it's always your enthusiasm. You've got such an earnest enthusiasm that that's kind of really what I remember. And you saying, "Hey, this is what's happening. This is what I want to do." And I guess I was responding in my mind. Uh, or my memory of it, I remember the emotion of it, not necessarily the conversational detail. But I, so I remember your enthusiasm and being really impressed that you were able to pivot, which is your lovely word, pivot so quickly. You know, highly adaptive, yeah, strategic, it. going up. strategic person. Every time someone says pivot, we now find them. I think Dr. Harry Wentz said it started on this podcast at a dollar, then ten dollars. I think it's now a hundred dollars. I must have had some peanut uh, butter and apple before I rang you because I could remember being energised. And I said to you, there's a real opportunity here. And I'd spoken to a few other people in different professions. And I was like, oh, yeah, how is your business going? They were like, oh, it's terrible. I said, how's your business? So this is what I remember. This is a real opportunity. This is a real opportunity to stand up. And, yeah, it's challenging, but there'll be growth out of this. It's exciting. Oh, that's like, what I said to you. You said, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> come on board. Let's go. And we did. We've done loads of programs since. So it was that enthusiasm and that optimistic lens. And for people watching or listening to this, yeah, you got five degrees. Yeah, you had parents who were off the charts academics. Yeah, you were the girl called in at 11. But, my God, you've had some tough events in your life and that narrative hasn't defined you. You've used that narrative too. Well, I think it's ironic that you remember that I was saying, great opportunity growth. And I don't remember that because to me, that's like, you know, the sky's blue, the grass is green. Like, I don't even, am I making sense? Like, yeah. that's how I view the world. So I don't think that's a, an unusual thing to I say. Because I think I was pretending to be optimistic then because um, well, I'm, I'm an overt optimist, as you know. Uh, but yeah, we were losing all of our revenue. So it was actually really nice to hear you. It was like, oh, there are some people out there seeing we're going to get through this. So one more question, then let's get into post-traumatic growth. Optimism versus pessimism. Can you change? So if someone's listening to this and they go, oh, Nicola, I'm third generation pessimist, my grandmother, my grandfather, my parents, there's no hope for me. What are your thoughts on that? Well, firstly, you're wrong, if I can be succinct in that way. So we researchers clearly indicate that you can learn to become optimistic. It's not a fixed trait. So while some of it is, if you like, there's this hereditary aspect to it and some of that's learned behaviours, possibly genetics. They've, they've looked at some genetic neurological way that people process information that you can't change, but we understand that you can modify and change at least 30% to 50% of how you interact and respond to the world. And it comes back to that. It's a psych word. It's narrative. And people go, what do you mean by narrative? It's the story you tell yourself. It's how you make sense of the world. And we know that you can change that. And there are certain things you can do to become optimistic. But I also want to say that optimism is not the same as post-traumatic growth. Optimism assists post-traumatic growth in the same way. And post-traumatic growth can make you resilient, but they're actually slightly different concepts. But optimism, that belief that ultimately there will be a good outcome, is really helpful. And, you know, after um, my surgery, so after the cancer was removed and, and I came to in the hospital, there's this little tiny card on the side of the bed, and I actually still have it today, and it said, um, when it's right, it's the end. And if it's not right, it's not the end. And I think that's what optimists hang on to. They keep moving forward. So that's the key thing of optimism is that you believe that things will be right in the end. I don't have research to back this up, but I know a lot of people in small business and we obviously have a lot of people listening to this podcast. 
I think it's one of the attributes that is very important or very beneficial to being a small business owner because to push through, you know, you've got to get through the sales, you've got to, uh, it's economic downturn, it's bushfires, it's drought, there's so much stuff that comes at it. So I think being optimistic, it's really important and it's lovely hearing you say that, yeah, you can train for optimism. So if I'm listening to this or watching this and I go, yeah, okay, it's all right for you two optimists living in Pollyanna, what are a couple of things? What are some tactical things someone can do to try and grow? grow or develop more optimism. Okay, so there's I guess there's a caveat. So optimists don't deny there's a problem and that's where people think, oh, you're all Pollyanna and everything's great. Optimists don't think like that. So they're reflective, right? So if it's not working, you adapt and change. So optimists will actually say, I can't change the situation. I'm not going to keep putting my energy because sometimes in business, you know, your business model might actually be wrong and you don't want to keep doing it just because one day it's going to get better. So an optimist will be saying, actually, this isn't working. What do I need to do instead? So if there's a problem, it's about finding the solution. And again, it's not the end until you've got the right solution. So I guess if you want to cultivate optimism, one thing is to always appreciate your strengths, right? You can't solve problems with weaknesses. You don't do that. You use your strengths. So one of the things that optimists do is use their strengths to solve problems and be reflective to think, is this working? If it's not, how do I make it work? And have that, the optimistic component really is that belief that you will get there in the end. Mm. And you've done research on this. You've written books on this, but some of the basic building blocks as well, if you see someone and they're not moving, they're not exercising, they're drinking too much, their sleep is fragmented, they're stressed, they're getting no nature. Just those basic building blocks, it does so much, doesn't it? Just to get you in a better state, feeling better. Uh, well, they're all completely interrelated. If you bring it all down to a sort of a chemical, physiological level, you have to use your brain to solve the problems and move forward optimistically or, or anything else. And if you're tired, stressed, not eating a proper diet or anything like that, your brain doesn't function. It's, it's very simple. You can't expect your car to drive if you haven't tuned the motor and put the right fuel in. And people take those basics for granted. Mm. And I know people hear that ad nauseum, but I don't think they understand it at a, at a chemical, cellular, basic physiological level. If you're not looking after those things, you actually can't do the higher level things. I'd love to do a separate podcast. So let's make a mm. little note on that wizard because let's get into neurotropic growth factor and some of the stuff you've researched and written about, about body-brain connection, which is one of the things that really interested me in your work, first of all, because in the past, I think the physiologists and physios and nutritionists have tried to claim the body and psychologists and Therapists have tried to claim the brain, but you've got this really nice blend between the two. So let's come back to that. We'll find a separate time to talk about brain health. Hi, we hope you have been enjoying this podcast so far. Don't forget that we have plenty more podcasts and content just like this on NAB Business Fit. Go to www.nab.com.au forward slash business fit for more content to support your physical and psychological well-being and to help you take care of business. But you did a really nice link and you said before, optimism is not post-traumatic growth. There's some links. So let's go back mid-90s. So when the research was coming out with Tedeschi and Calhoun, I hope I've got those names right, that would have been quite revolutionary because up until that time, a lot of psychology was focusing on what's wrong. So you've got these two guys, two Americans come out and go, actually, you know, stress, trauma, challenging situations is actually good for you, post-traumatic growth. 
Yeah, and you've got to remember that psychology, the field of psychology when it began was actually looking at, if you like, the positive psychology, what makes some people resilient, what makes some people manage stress, as well as looking at the pathologies. And then we had two world wars in quick succession. And because of those wars, basically what happened is psychology really got sucked up into the the pathologies of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, the psychoses, all those things that were very prevalent throughout a lot of society after the world wars. And it's taken a long time until the 80s and 90s when, you know, economically and so forth, the world was in a reasonable place in the 90s that they could actually say, hey, we've kind of done all the work on the, on the pathology. Let's actually look at what helps some people thrive. So they started, and you know, these aren't the words they necessarily use because language changes all the time, but they started to look at why are some people psychologically robust? Why do some people remain psychologically well? And so they were part of that shift in sort of in the big picture of psychology. At that same time, we started to look at learned optimism. So there's a lot of people working in that space and they coined this fantastic term of post-traumatic growth. And it was initially looking at, um, if you look at their case studies, they were actually people with cancer Um, because at that time, cancer was a very feared condition. So does Martin Seligman have to reauthor his story? You talk about narrative and Martin Seligman's done so much for the positive psychology movement. But I think the story goes along the lines. He was president of the American Psychological Association. He's watering his garden and he told his young girl, daughter, go inside, I'll put your shoes on. And she said, dad, like, you know, you're a psychologist. How can you always tell me what's wrong? And apparently, oh, the hose went everywhere. So I think he's seen largely outside of psychology as putting positive psychology on the map. So the reauthoring of that story is psychology was looking at human flourishing, all human condition pre-two world wars. We almost got fixated. Really interesting hearing you explain that. And then thankfully we've picked up again and now we're looking at above the line or looking at flourishing or looking at post-traumatic growth. So where do we start? With a small business owner, uh, I felt this, you know, we felt this, the change. Thankfully, we had good clients, good support, good colleagues to get us through, but there was fear. There was anxiety. There was panic. Every time you and I, you especially were saying this to our clients, don't start the day, don't middle of the day, don't end the day on social media, on the news, get off it. You know, this too shall pass, that beautiful Hebrew proverb. But on post-traumatic growth now, most of the, the lockdowns at this stage over in Australia, what will people be starting to feel, see? What's post-traumatic growth in action? What does it look like for either a small business owner or even someone in a big business who's been through a really, really challenging 2020? Okay. Um, I'm just going to pull you up a little bit because for some people, they get re-traumatised every day because of where they are at. So even though they talk about phases or stages or whatever of post-traumatic growth, some people don't really go through them and things can happen that it's not necessarily a nice sequence and dinner, you've arrived and it's I'm all over. I'm in phase three and, yeah, and next and Wednesday I'm scheduling, hey, stage four, I'm here. That's right. And I've got this licked and it's all over. So it's this constant process and, you know, sometimes people have to remember to bring themselves back to the basics. But if you think what happens after any stress or trauma, accident or, you know, any um, really uncomfortable experience, and people use different words, you have your first reaction. And um you kind of had two reactions. So one, you have the physiological reaction and one, you have the psychological reaction. 
And the physiological is you feel like the stress, the muscles you feel are the, tense. That's right. So the sympathetic nervous system goes off and your blood pressure goes up, your heart starts beating, breathing. And so your body is preparing you for, for a stress. So one of the jobs that is required in this process is to actually manage your physiological response. So you want to get back to homeostatic calm. So you want to calm down and, and get the parasympathetic nervous system going. Now, where you do that, is variable. Some people need to do it straight up. Some people need to deal with the danger first and then in a problem-solving way and then work on those skills. But I'm just going to park the physiological stuff over the side, but I'm just recognising that there is something going on in your body you need to deal with. And I keep using my hands and I don't even know if anyone can see, but the other thing that's going on is the psychological response. And the first part is acceptance, I guess, and some people deny it. So there's the acceptance of you're going to have your um, holy moly moment of oh my gosh, there's something, a problem here that I have to to manage or deal with. And you can either, from that psychological response, you can either go into a pattern of talking, if you like, your psychological narrative that will continue to cause you distress and will continue to build it. And this is what I have used the term of building your armchair that you're going to sit in, okay? So it's not a forward-thinking, problem-solving position. It's uh, the henny-penny. It's the worry. It's the escalation of worry. And it's exhausting. It reduces your immune system. It's incredibly hard on your body. People get depressed anxious and, and we saw you and I saw a lot of that and, and understandably for a lot of people absolutely there's no at the, at the, in the, those early phases like were we going to have a job what was going to happen to the economy we're not traveling borders are closed it was fear it was panic that's right and which is why we're suggesting get off your social media and take control and one of the things we were saying is get control of your exposure get your control of your risk so in the post-traumatic growth model I think I've said to you that you know life can give you a dud deal. Like, you know, you're going to get a bad hand and that's sort of one guarantee in life is that you're going to have, you're going to hit a roadblock or whatever euphemism you want to use, but something in life is going to stop you in your tracks and cause you, I don't like necessarily use the word trauma, but it's going to be a demanding and potentially stressful, overwhelming situation. So life's going to deal you a rough hand and I always think you've got two aces and your first ace is acceptance so that there's a problem you have to deal with it. The second thing is control. And in terms of COVID, well, we can't control the virus, but we can control our exposure to risk, which is what I've mentioned. You can also ex- control your exposure to worry, which is really important. Explain more on that. Um, well, it's like not going onto social media, not not being around things that fuel that narrative that can be unhelpful and, and cause distress. So being around people who don't worry be another strategy around yep. that? Yep. So if you want to be feel calm and optimistic, hang out with people who are calm and optimistic. You know, we know mood is, is contagious. So you want to be around people who are demonstrating a calm problem-solving technique, because that's what we need to do. You know, we give over 30% of our brain real estate is given over to being strategic and having control and being adaptive. And that's where we need to be, which is why quietening down the body enables the strategic part of your brain to take over. Now, if someone is taking the succumbing, if you like, to the negative emotion, there's no judgment if people do that. It means they haven't learned the skills. The positive thing to come out of this is we know that you can learn the skills. So if you find yourself sitting in that lounge chair of distressing emotions, ideally that you would say, okay, I need to do something. This emotional position is not helpful. I need to use those emotions, acknowledge them, and then become strategic, like empower. You just said that so elegantly, but I just want to draw that out for the listener. They haven't learned the skills 
I think that's really powerful. And we often talk, you and I, we get excited about mental skills training. So if someone wants to lose weight, tone up, get fit, you go to the gym. A lot of people get a personal trainer or join a class. Why? They teach you skills. You learn how to squat. You learn how to bench press. You learn what foods to eat, eat more vegetables, less sugar, cut back the alcohol. It's skills. It's exactly the same with your mindset. And I think a lot of people just go, oh, I've always been like this. Or they may have read you know, attribution style on pessimistic. Pessimism uh, based on permanence, pervasiveness, and personal. You know, it's all my fault happening in all my world and you know, I cause a lot of it. But no, you can learn skills. It's great. How do you teach people though to learn skills? If someone is worried, concerned, and they don't know how to change that narrative, what are some skills you give someone? Right. Well, the first thing to do is to quieten down the stress response because when you when you are stressed and your body's going off into the um, you know fear, fight, flight, freeze, your thinking part, strategic part of your brain's not working. So you need to calm that down, make someone feel secure and safe. Firstly. And then when once people are calmer, then their brain has the capacity to learn, adapt, grow, problem solve. So again, it's like you need to – so physiologically, if we looked at the brain, the emotional responding part of the brain, there's, you know, one on either side of, of the brain, they're very small structures, but what happens is they punch above their weight and they they're create the – amygdala and we hear about the amygdala. Now, I'm talking to the brain scientists, so pull me up if I'm you know, crossing any boundaries – but from the amygdala, which is that we often talk about the child or the teenager. Oh, my God, you know, you don't understand, mum, dad, you've got no idea. This is, so that's the emotive response, right? To, and you say getting that cerebral cortex, calm, considered, strategic. Yeah, so you've got to shut down the amygdala and it's called the HPA axis. But anyway, it's all about the adrenal cortisol system, sympathetic nervous system. You need to quieten that down. And then that wonderful frontal lobe, 30% of brain real estate, can it do its job, which is to problem solve and be strategic. So giving someone the skills to learn to relax, possibly exercise to dissipate some of that energy, and then start talking about... Um, well, really concrete things we can do, which is like the two aces, which is my easy way to remember it. So acceptance, there's something you need to do. The um, second one was control. So we're talking about controlling your exposure or risk, depending on the situation, take control of your business, you know, actually work out who your clients still are and how they you're going to go forwards with that group and recognising that you might lose this 30%, but don't hang on to that worry of losing it. Focus on the 70% you've still got. Take that control of what you can. And then the next thing is to move into learning education. So that's the E. So what skills do you need? What knowledge do you need? So for example, I guess for COVID, like you want to find out how contagious is it? You know, how is it transmissible? If it's your small business, it might be for me, it was, okay, what do I need to learn in terms of telehealth platforms? What do you need to learn? Cancer diagnosis. Okay, what do I need to learn to help me get through the medical journey? Like what do I, and also what don't I want to expose myself to that might worry me? And also small business owners, how do I digitise my business? What presence do I need on a website? What do I do on social media? How much social media is just sort of clickbait? How much is actually going to get me business? And how do I learn to present? Like we've all become overnight newsreaders and you know, hosts, haven't we? We're all doing multiple events, whether it's a meeting or a conference. So there is a lot of skills and learning in that. And for someone who's not an expert, but who's a lifelong learner, 
I'm sure you embrace those first three A's. The first ace, acceptance, control, education, and learning. It's lifelong. What's the second ace? I'm really I'm looking forward to the next ACE. Okay, so we're moving more into some of the positive psychology things that we're talking about before with Seligman and so forth. So there's the notion of appreciation. So that's looking at your strengths, counting your blessings. So this is when you remember what's good. Because when we go down the hole of what's wrong, it's very easy to lose perspective. And so part of that rebalancing or recalibration is to say, appreciate what's good. One of the things people go, I don't know what's good. And I said, okay, tell me what you want to still be in your life tomorrow. Like, you know, if I'm going to take everything away. That's a really good frame, isn't it? So if someone's really stuck on, Dr. Nicola, you don't understand my relationship stinks, my job, the people I work with, I can't even catch a clipboard in an interview. (laughs) Um, That's a really nice frame. Yeah, because suddenly they go, oh, my gosh, well, I want to keep my dog and, gosh, I love my kids. Like, I've, you know, I can't have had my kids. And then they start listing all the things. Like if you actually say we're going to – if we strip out all – because, you know, it's very easy when you – and I said you go down that black hole of what's wrong, it's really easy just because of the way the brain works to just keep falling through that space of of negativity, of pessimism. So part Surely of it – Surely that doesn't happen to you, right? Like you've, oh, you've no, never, I, you've I never had – have you ever had moments where you have been – stuck. I have. It's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about mental health. Like I knew what I should do, but I just got stuck in a narrative a number of years ago. Yeah. Well, it's not that I don't have those moments, but what happens is I probably pull myself up really, really quickly, if I'm making so you sense. you see the triggers. So, yeah. So some people sort of, if you imagine um, you have a, a scaffold of how good is life at this moment, some people let themselves go really low before they start to recognise what's good. I could start being grumpy because I'm caught in really bad traffic and I think I'm going to be late. And as soon as I start feeling that that muscle tension going, I go, okay, Nicola, your kids are happy and healthy. And as soon as I say that, bang, it's all gone. You've got a beautiful dog. Right? Yeah, I do. So I don't, but what I'm saying is I, don't, I don't really don't get past the first thing. So I'm so well-trained. So, you know. Well, other- so well-trained. So you've got the mental skills, but you've also got self-awareness. So yeah. I think you need the two, you right? You do. So if someone's listening to this, sometimes you don't know what you don't know, you know unconscious incompetence. That's right. And the, one of the exercises that Seligman from the Positive Psychology School does is about keeping, and you don't have to buy a $50 appreciation journal, just the mere act of thinking about five things that you appreciate every day. Now, if you keep doing that, it's you get to a point you don't even have to think about it. It's in flow. And what I'm saying is, you know, over a lifetime of counting my blessings, like I've got a millisecond trip line here that as soon as I feel that tension of something's not right, I just go straight to that thought of my list of all the things that are good. And as I said, because my body and brain and everything are used to this pattern of thinking, everything, the stress or anything just falls away really, really quickly. Now, that's a lifetime. But some people, you know, anyone can learn to do that. And the physiological trigger to relaxation from the positive appreciative thoughts will just get closer and more firmed for other people as well. And we know that from neuroplasticity. And I wanted to dig a bit deeper on that because I think we can sometimes talk about it, but going with some of those really tactical examples for people helps. So, you know, I love working with a whole broad range of people. So when I watch a football or a netballer, a dancer, you watch a, a musician in flow, you're just mesmerised by someone who's nailed their craft. There's so much work goes into that. Yeah. So what you're explaining is exactly the same. Your craft, you teach other people how to have a flourishing life, how to look after our crazy monkey mind. 
understand life is a range of emotions. It's not just happy and sad. It's everything else in between. But I actually love that. And I've heard you explain that. And I'm actually teaching my kids that. So thank you for passing it on. And I was saying to Michaela recently, like, if you feel like your bucket, you know, your 10 is when you're with your buddies, your friends, and you're at a birthday party and you know, it, it's nice and fun. And then like, what's a nine? So we had a really meaningful conversation, thanks to some of the skills you've passed on to me, that now Mickey can pull up when she's at a six or a seven. Whereas I think what was happening in her young brain, it was sort of getting below that and then it not learned helplessness, but that's what happens to some people, right? But I could just see her mood shifting. And she said the other day, oh, dad, my bucket got to five or six and I went for a walk. And I'm like, oh, dad, it's, so it's, it's powerful, really powerful. Yeah, and that's lovely to hear. And it's she's lucky that she's got a dad who's tuned into those things. I mean, these are skills that we could be teaching every child at school. Um, but there's certainly things that information's out there to learn for people to access if they want to. But it is something that they can learn. And it's a as you say, that reflection. And I mentioned neuroplasticity, and that's because the narrative, I am actually trying to keep all this in a workable, cohesive peace for our listeners. So when I talk about the narrative, the narrative we always tell ourselves, it builds connections in the brain or pathways and firing circuits. So if we've told ourselves a disabling narrative um, or a pessimistic narrative of, of problems and, and we lack capacity to, to control them, then that's going to be the dominant response. We know that from neuroplasticity. If you think some, a thought becomes wired into the brain. We know that from neuroplasticity. And so unhelpful, disabling thoughts become hardwired in. Now, it's really easy for someone like me to say, oh, to just try thinking something new. Now, I actually know that it's not easy and it takes time because essentially what you're doing is you're going from this, you know, imagine this, this highway and everyone's driving at 120 k's and, you know, five lanes of a thought, something stressful happens and they go to that place of, I don't know what to do. This is overwhelming. I can't do anything to control it. Now, that is neuroplastic. It's hardwired in their brain. And through this webinar and podcast and all the other incredible information you have on your site, we're inviting people to another track that actually doesn't exist in their brain. So we're asking through the process of neuroplasticity, we know it exists, we can change the brain, but it takes time and effort. So we're saying, come over here and next time something stressful happens, rather than go to that point of, I'm overwhelmed, there's nothing I can do, we're saying, hey, come over here, acknowledge your emotions and find solutions and believe that you're going to manage it. Now, we're asking them to change their brain, which they can do, but it takes time, attention and effort. And, you know, sometimes we're so in the thick of this crazy, amazing thing called life that we actually don't really give ourselves those three resources, time, attention and effort. So true. And you can do something really simple. When you sit down at night, if you're sitting down with a family or friends or flatmates, you can do the best bit of the day. And I've told you, Archie, a number of years ago, added the not best bit. And I said, Archie, why, why do you want to do the not best bit? He said, well, when you do the not best bit, he was four. So like your 11-year-old sort of wisdom, he's got wisdom at four. Uh, when you do the not best bit, it makes the best bit even better. So we will go around and I do this with friends, some of my executives, some of my CEO friends, we catch up for dinner and they're, they're sort of channeling Archie's. We do, oh, what's the not best bit of your week and what's the best bit of your week? It's really powerful because you finish Hey, and we do this on our Monday meeting. We go back, what was the highlight of last week? So all of that team, hey, actually, I did do this. It may have been a challenging week some weeks, but hey, I had this win or I spoke to this person or you know, we, we, we got this win or this breakthrough. So it's really important to train that even on a daily basis. 
Yeah, that's right. And if you like, it's post-traumatic growth on a micro level rather than necessarily a macro level. So I think we're down looking at appreciation Mm -hmm. and the appreciation, well, what can you learn? What are the tools you can, so appreciating the good and moving on from that with adjustment and adaptation and, and saying, okay, how do I use this in a way that may enable me, A, to get out of this situation, but actually I might gather some skills and knowledge and experience that will enable me again in the future. So the next time something traumatic happens. And that, I guess, comes down to, brings us to wisdom. But the other part of the ACE that's really important in all of this, for all of us, is we are social animals. And humans benefit at a health level, at a, you know, physiologically, our immune system improves, our mental health improves when we are connected to other people. Now, in the original model of post-traumatic growth, they actually talked about support and disclosure. Now, we don't use those terms anymore. Now we talk about being connected. That's because when we are connected to other people, we have the opportunity to get their emotional support. We have the opportunity to talk to them. In talking to other people, it helps us... um, I guess, make sense of some of our thoughts and emotions as well, but also that becomes part of recruiting support. It could be practical support for a business. It may mean that you get a business mentor. It may mean that you get some financial advice. So connections don't have to just be to friends and family. They can be other to other, I guess, people that have resources, experience and skills that you can, mm-hmm. can use. So that's fundamental. And, you know, you talked about how you think about your best days. It's amazing how when people talk about that, it's usually got to do with the connection to another human being and we cannot underestimate that. And then the last part, which is again what you've just alluded to, I guess, is the bring it all together, which is the wisdom, the integration of it all, the engagement with your life experience and, and packaging it up in a way that serves you well and will help you go into the future and I guess with optimism. I'm just going to rewind on the connection. For anyone, do you know what most people do while they listen to a podcast? They're probably FaceTiming. They're doing something else. So we multitask. (laughs) So the research shows that we tend to be walking and they might be mowing the lawn, they might be commuting, they might be in a boring work meeting. Um, so if anyone just heard connection, ooh, you weren't talking about Wi-Fi. It's about connecting with people. And those two really run together, don't they? Disconnect from your technology could be another whole segment. And connect with people, have conversation. You know, I think one of the good things about COVID, Nicola, we've spoken about this in our respective neighbourhoods, people are outside. You know, you see people walking around saying hello to each other. There's this real sense of community that we didn't have, I don't think, prior to Uh, Monday the 15th of March when we all started working from home. Yeah, that's true. So let me summarise. I love your ACEs. Acceptance, control, education and learning. That's the first ACE. Appreciation, connection and engagement is the second ACE. Now, I think it would be remiss of you and I to have a discussion without talking about Fredrickson, Broaden and Build. (laughs) I was thinking in preparation for this. I was wondering whether you'd bring it in. You sort of did before. I thought you were going to almost talk about spirals, but can you explain the Broaden and Build theory and how does this sort of wrap into what we're talking about? Right. Okay. So Broaden and Build. So Essentially, it, it means that we have life experiences and and we can broaden out and gain knowledge and education and other resources and awareness about ourselves. So if you like, it broaden out our foundation so we get a, a strong, strong foundation and then we can grow so we can get height. And you imagine, you know, a really tall building, like it needs a really strong foundation. And through our life, we can broaden And obviously that broadening is strengthened by that positive growth because stress and trauma kind of white ant 
the foundation and they actually close it down. So we're talking about the growth. So we broaden out, increase our foundation of skills, experience, resources, and then we build up. So, you know, we've got that wisdom, that experience, and we can grow and launch ourselves and become that incredibly adaptive and capable person that we are, that all of evolution has given us this incredible capacity to broaden and build, adapt, change, grow. The language keeps changing, but the evolution, the physiology, the neurophysiology, our psychological makeup is all supportive of this as a this incredible human being on the planet that you we've got this even capacity. More alive. I think if you've got your bucket <laughs> at an eight or a nine, you probably operate on a throw broaden and build and you so for those watching in the hand movements and everything, it's just it's the energy around that. But you can train that. And that's one of the big things I've taken out of working with you, learning from you as a student working with you. You can train this stuff and you should be training this all the time and being conscious of it. But it's it's a self-awareness, knowing, but then it's putting it into practice, you know, self-awareness, self-regulation. It's that dance between those two things. And what's exciting is you can actually change the way you think. You don't have to just take where you are as a set point. Yeah, and that's, as you know, my PhD was looking at rewiring. So it, I just find it incredibly exciting that we have this incredible capacity to grow and adjust and and continue to thrive. And we do know that life is rich and some people have more monetary resources than other people and some people have more social resources than other people and some people have high internal resources in terms of emotional regulation than other people. So we're all different and we bring different things to it, but the fundamental idea that everybody wants a good life and we do the best with what we've got. And sometimes people don't realise that they have more and they could do more. They don't recognise how much they've got. And in my clinical role, I see all sorts of people and and it doesn't have to, and the research backs this up, that what we're talking about, that drive to keep moving forwards, is half based on the decisions you make, how the decision how you think, the decision how you behave how you support and resource your body, the decisions to connect. We know that half of the things that contribute to your base level of life contentment are completely under your control. Which is powerful, so powerful. Amazing. Now, for someone who is listening to this and is going, I just, getting out of bed is really difficult. And there are a lot of people that have responded differently to COVID. We've been focusing a lot more on the growth today, which I think has been really nice, refreshing to talk about. Look, it's been bloody tough. It's been challenging. I don't think we all want another six months like that again too soon. We need a bit of time to reflect and grow and renew and adapt. But for those people that are stuck and for a lot of people through no fault of their own, where should people go to get some extra support if they find they're really struggling? Well, the first point of call would be your GP because they have capacity to refer you to the various care that you might need, professional support. It'd be very easy to go and say, go to a mental health provider, a registered psychologist, psychiatrist. But I always say to people, go to your GP first because there might be some physical things that are also contributing to you having difficulty. So go and get a whole picture of you and then go and seek the relative things. But the other thing is just to reach out and connect with someone. But the first thing is to recognise that you're struggling and that it's okay to put your hand up and say, you know what, I need help with this. And, And for men, especially listening to this, 
it's not a weakness. It's a strength to stick your hand up. And I'm not just saying that you know, men are the only ones that don't stick their hand up because some women, small business owners, some of the executives that we've worked with are very proud as well. But for men and women, yeah, stick your hand up. Go say to your friends, colleagues, get some support. You know, Don't be an island. Let's change gears. I've got three questions before we wrap up. First question I've got for you, when are you happiest? So if you look at your week, your year, when are you at your flourishing best? Uh, I have to give two answers because there's one when it's just me providing for me and that would be in my garden. So I love gardening, um, completely zoning out, immersing in nature. I just, you know, hours can go by and I've just been looking at a beautiful purple dragonfly. Just love being in nature, um, find that really both calming and energising at the same time. And uh, and the other one is any time with, with my children, just to sit back and and um, just look at the gorgeous people that they are. And because of their age, that's really, really precious time. But just looking at their awesomeness um, and watching them carve their own thing. I'm going to get tears. Um, yeah, it just absolutely fills me with delight because that's my my best contribution. Mm. Tears are catchy. I've got to have a breath as well. Um, beautiful. When you look back at everything you've done, the achievements in your career, life, some of the challenges, what are you most proud of? Maybe sort of build on what you've just spoken about. Well, you did preface it with career. Oh, I'm, I'm going either different ways. It could All be- right. So the career one would be actually doing my PhD because I really don't like statistics and, you know, as a psychologist you have to do so many. So that's always been my Achilles, my academic Achilles, my weakness has always been statistics. And so doing a PhD and having serious statistics and having to learn a whole lot of new statistics in order because I posed really difficult questions which meant I couldn't use any of the stats that I'd studied for five years. So I had to learn new statistics. And, you know, people say a oh, learning curve. And I used to just laugh because there was no bloody curve. It was straight up cliff. <laughs> and I just kept saying, you know, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. You know, you've got the brain power, give yourself the patience and just baby steps. Like that was really me using a lot of self-talk because it was it was a really daunting task. And I was just, okay, little bits don't Look at the don't look to the top of the cliff because it's overwhelming. And in actual fact, I used the same idea. Um, I was going to say going through all my cancer treatment was a big burden. Well, big burden, big challenge. It was a really big challenge, and it was the same kind of mantra. You know, you know, you're pointed towards the end goal, but now just one foot in front of the other. Like, okay, first surgery, do that. Second surgery, whatever. Just it was just that grit, if you like, just. Baby steps, self-talk, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. Is there a question you would like me to ask you or is there a question you would like to ask me? Mm. Oh, I've got heaps of questions I could ask you. Um, The question I'd like you to ask me would be what would be the one piece of advice that you'd like to give to people? Nicola, my final question today is what would be the one piece of advice, if you could distill down to one thing to leave with our listeners, what would that be? Kindness. And I say that and it starts with kindness to self because if you're not kind to yourself, you won't look after yourself. Do the eating, the sleeping, the exercise, all those things you need to do to support you to deal with adversity and get through. So self-kindness. And we understand that self-kindness leads out beyond yourself. So once you sort of 
give yourself that love and time and respect. We know that it kind of it's almost physiological. You get that lift, open heart, kindness to other people. We know that that breeds generosity and tolerance. So kindness, because kindness begets kindness. And if people would like to have more of a dose of kindness and to find you on the interweb or technology, where's the best place to find you? Uh, through my website. Cheers. Brainandmindpsychology.com. Brainandmindpsychology.com. You've been an amazing confidant, a colleague, uh, learning over the last six months, especially. So it's been wonderful to talk to you today. You're very kind, very generous with your information. You're not an expert because you're constantly learning. But the 11-year-old girl, she definitely made the right choice. (laughs) Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Nicola. Hey, it's Andrew again, and we hope you enjoyed that interview. Just a quick note to remember to please go to nab.com.au slash businessfit. We hope you really liked this episode and received lots of value, and we would love it if you can go to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast and click on the subscribe button. We'd also really appreciate it if you share it with friends or colleagues you think might also benefit from these messages. And we'd really appreciate if you can rate and review it. We love seeing your messages and love seeing your ratings. Okay, that's it for this time. We look forward to connecting with you again on the next episode of NAB Business Fit.